Father, we do thank you again for this morning and this time together that we have to to reflect on your word, to go through yet another section of history, of law, but ultimately a display of your grace to us in Christ. We thank you that as we are walking through Leviticus, we see Christ as king and lawmaker, and yet also the one who has fulfilled the law for us and redeemed us and freed us so that we can reflect him and um, honor him by how we live. So we ask once again for your spirit to be with us this morning to give us wisdom and discernment over your word, that it would be more than head knowledge, that it would do what only your spirit can do, that he would change the heart from the inside out, glory to glory, reflecting Jesus. We pray that you use this time this morning to do a little more of that today in each of us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in Leviticus chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Last week, we finished uh, the overview, the first worship manual. Remember, Leviticus is divided in several different worship manuals. We finished the first worship manual, which was the overview of the offerings. And that's chapters 1 and then 6, 7. You remember which, what were the five offerings? Do you remember? Just by way of review. Starts, started with what? The, the bull, the burnt offering, right? Then it was the... Hey, how are you? Uh, what was the grain offering? Then we went into the peace offering. I'll just go ahead and do it. And then, and then there was the sin offering and the guilt offering. So those are five categories of offerings that were given. And these commands on the general offerings were directed to the lay people, right? Everybody knew this. Everybody had to do this. Everybody understood this applies to me. The second manual goes through the same offerings. But it's directed to the priests. The first manual is why it's needed. And then the second manual is how it's done. A little bit more detail from the standpoint of the priests. Um, there, and I'll just cut through it here. We're going to deal with four of them today. Or, or There are five sections, but, it, but there's a reason for that. The first section we'll look at is the birth, again, from the perspective of the priests, and that's 8 through 13. And then, then there's the grain offering. And then there's a grain offering for the commission of new priests, a new high priest. Then there's the sin offering, and then the guilt offering. And next week we're going to conclude the second manual with, with the, the peace offering or the fellowship offering. And in telling you that, I've highlighted a distinction between the first manual and the second manual. What do you think it is? It's out of order. Objection, out of order. It's out of order. Why would that be? Why would, I mean, why wouldn't you just follow the same order that you had the first manual? What, what do you think is going on there? Show importance. Show importance, okay. In, in what way? Is it not important in the first manual and it's important in the second manual? How, why, why would it, why do you think they're grouped that way? Here's a hint. Nobody really knows. They just did it. And he put it this way. Um, with the fellowship offerings at the end instead of the middle, 
the basis of the order for the first manual is a little different, and it may be, there's some theories, it may be that in the first manual they were grouped with what is involuntary and what's voluntary. You know, the, the burn offering, the grain offering, and the fellowship offering kind of more voluntary. And the last two, sin and, sin and guilt, were mandatory offerings. This one seems to be um, a little bit different grouping based on offerings that are most holy and holy. So there's a character of the offering. But really, it's just kind of theory. There's just some speculation there. I bring that out. Another difference there, the manual introduces, the second manual introduces categories within the major offerings. And we'll talk about that in a minute. There are categories within the major offerings. And then finally, this manual, because it's directed to the priest, focuses on procedure and process uh, more than uh, more than the substantive requirements of it. It's just how to do it. Do you remember we kind of did this in Exodus? There was here's how you here's what I want you to do, and then whenever he got to the narrative part, here's what they did. It's kind of the same idea here. Here's what you need to do, and then here's how to do it. The second manual is is focused on that. So we're going to take them uh, one at a time, starting in verse eight. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. First of all, is this a suggestion? Hey, this is a good idea. What is this? Who's it directed to? To whom is it directed? From Moses. God tells Moses to command Aaron and his sons. Who are they? The priest. So we see the first, really, in Leviticus, a direct command to the priesthood. Remember, this is still kind of, they're in limbo at this point. The priests haven't been initiated yet or consecrated and set apart. They're, they're still developing this part. And so God is telling Moses, begin to command what they're going to do once they're, once they're, um, consecrated. And we're gonna, we're gonna see that in a couple of weeks when that happens. So, this is a command to the priesthood. Is this the same type of offering, the burnt offering that we saw in chapter 1 that lay people brought? Is it different or is it the same? Do you remember? Because remember, chapter 1, God wants to bring a burnt offering to God, except me. Bought it, priest did it, it was done, they took the stuff out at the end. And Is this the same thing? seems like it is, just the procedure is different. Who, who is doing it is different, the garments are different. It's more descriptive. It's more descriptive. 
what's going on here? How many offerings do you have in a day here? And who's making the offering? The burnt offering? Okay. What else does it say? It says on the altar all night until the morning. And then what does it say? And the fire shall be kept burning. It's a perpetual thing, isn't it? What we're seeing here is a continual burnt offering. This is different than the lay offering. This is something that the priests do on behalf of the people every morning and every night. And the fire is kept burning throughout the night. Uh, we saw this in Exodus 29, the two one-year-old lambs that were burnt in the morning and one in the evening. And he specifically instructs the priest not to allow the fire to go out three times. Three times. I'm going to do three. And so it must be important, right? You repeat something in Hebrew, we, we know that means it's really important. Why? Why keep this fire burning continually? What's going on here? What do you think? What do you think? The priests are doing this. This is not an offerer coming to bring a burnt offering. This is the priesthood doing this. Why would they be doing this? It could be a representation of the priest's protection over the people. Okay, he's doing it on behalf of the people, on behalf of the nation. And it's continual all night. The hedge. It's a continual thing. On behalf of the people, an offering is on the altar. They needed the offering. Okay? What would that be? What does that tell us? It's an entire nation of Okay. They sin perpetually. They sin perpetually. So they need an eternal covenantal burnt offering to atone for their perpetual sin. Just as kind of a blanket covering. What else do you think? God started it. What do you mean by that? Who started the fire in the in the tabernacle? Do you remember at the end of the at the end of Exodus what happened? Right? Came from heaven. He set the first fire, and they are charged with keeping it burning. Right? There's been several theories on this. Some of the smart folks. One, uh, one idea is that it's a soothing aroma that should ascend continually to Yahweh. Another idea is that it preserves the bond of peace between God and His people. Another is that it's a symbol of the consecration of the Hebrews to Yahweh. Calvin picked up on your thought. He must have heard you thinking. The first offering in the tabernacle was lit by fire from the heavens and it must be continued. And all of those are probably good explanations. Uh, certainly, it taught the priests and the people that they were to have a posture of continual repentance and worship before the Lord. This is an ongoing posture of humility before the covenant king. And it's shown in the tabernacle every day, every morning, every night. This is going on. Does Paul say anything like this about our attitude and our posture as believers? Anything about humility in the New Testament? He says, when he's dealing with the thorn in his side, tells the Corinthians, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's recognizing the power of God and our dependence and our need for Him. What else does it show about the priesthood? What is it calling on the priest to do to keep this going? What does it say about them? The needed characteristic of a priest. Somebody has to, either they take shifts to stay up all night and right. in the fire or people are always tired. Yeah, those 12-hour shifts are tough. Um, it requires them to be faithful and diligent. They've got to get wood. They've got to keep it burning. They've got to be attentive to the fire. In fact, if I remember correctly, there, there are eras of high priests that are uh, categorized by the time when they kept the fire burning. I think if I'm, I'm just... Eli and the fire was still burning under the under the uh, leadership of Eli. Those kinds of things. They reference it based upon the faithfulness of the high priest at the time. Um, for the fire to burn continually required the diligence on the part of the priest. What we see here is a strong focus on the need of faithfulness by the priest, specifically to intercede on Israel's behalf. We see this in Paul. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Philippians 1.3 If we're the temple of the Holy Spirit who lit our fire, don't we have, doesn't this show that we as priests in the New Testament have a duty of diligence and faithfulness to keep that fire lit? Should we not be about continually tending to that fire? All right, look at the clothing in 10 and 11. What's going on here? What is implicated by the priest taking off his white garment and putting on other clothes to carry the ashes outside the camp? What, what is that saying? Why does he do it? He doesn't want to get the holy clothes dirty. So there's a distinction, right, between what's holy and what's unholy, what's clean and unclean. We'll see this a lot. We've seen it some already. That there are actions taken to demonstrate that there's a distinction between what's holy and unholy. God is teaching them wisdom and discernment on what is good and right and true and how to make those distinctions. With such a massive, continual fire effort... Who supplies the wood? Who supplies the wood? Now we have a little one of those little bitty fire things in our backyard. And it it's a pain to keep it fed when the kids want to do the thing will call them marshmallows, but the, the the fire constantly is burning and so you want to keep it done and if wood burns down real quickly, that's a big undertaking. We're talking about perpetual fire. Who supplies the wood? The priests? Do they have wood? Do they get, you know, they're in the temple, the tabernacle. How does it work? Well, I'll just tell you because I didn't tell you in the passage. Um, it's kind of fun. Uh, the, the people provide it. There is, uh, in Nehemiah, see that uh, they call upon all the people to bring the wood into the tabernacle so that the fire can be relit and be, and be perpetually done. All of the people of God must contribute. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? It's not just 
it's a duty. the whole nation that is humble in that one act. That's right. It's a duty of the entire nation to keep that fire lit. They each have a part in, in, in making sure it's done. Even though the priests are the hands-on people, the supply comes from all of the people. They would have to, if they're wandering around the desert, they would have to go far out together. Would. A lot of labor goes every day into providing enough wood for the fire yet again. It's a covenant faithfulness, not just on the part of the priesthood, is it? It's also the whole congregation. All of the nation is involved in this covenant faithfulness. Now, do you find it interesting at the end here? I'm trying to find it here. Ah, here it is. In verse uh, 12. It says, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Do you find it interesting that they were to feed the fire with the fat of the fellowship offerings? Because that's just Baptist. How, many, how much alliteration do I use? Feed the fire with the fat of the fellowship offerings. What does that tell you? It sounds like a new Sunday night thing that we ought to do. It's a new program in the Baptist church. What, what does that tell you? They're feeding the fire, not only with wood, but also with the fat of fellowship offerings. No Israelite was an island and neither are we. Their fellowship offerings go to supplying the fuel for this fire. All right, let's look at the grain offering here. 14 through 18. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it as decreed forever throughout your generations. From the Lord's food offerings, whatever touches them shall become holy. Whatever touches them shall become holy. Now, grain offering, it's not much different here than what we've already learned in, in chapter 2. Um, the priests must eat what was not burned. And only the priests, not their families, because it has to be eaten in the courtyard of the priests in a holy place. Why, why should the grain stay in the tabernacle of the temple? Later, we'll see it in the temple. Why does the grain stay there? What does it say? It's most holy. What does that mean? What else is most holy? It's like the, that most holy term we've seen before is, is the term a holy of holies. The grain offering. A ho- yes, it's not. This is very not salty. And I'm not thirsty, I promise. It's really, it's okay. Um, so it says a holy of holies. There, again, the offering itself is, has the characteristic of the inner sanctuary. What do, do you remember the grain offering? What we talked about was 
what it, what it was um, representing. Burnt offering was acceptance. Grain offering was... Do you remember? They were usually done together. Been a while. Sanctification. Remember, they, it was a, a sanctifying kind of thing. There, there is a... Again, we see a memorial portion, a substitute for the entire offering, while the rest goes to the priest. And it says, whoever touches them shall be holy. Is this holiness contagious? If you touch, if you can just get to the grain offering, is that what it means? Is that what it's saying here? Yes, no? In chapter 2 it says it's most holy of all the offerings to the Lord made by fire. Okay. So, how, what does that mean then? Whoever touches it shall be holy. Or. They have to be holy in order to touch it. They have to be holy in order to touch it. What does that tell you? Only priests. Only priests. Again, there's a distinction between what's holy and unholy, clean and unclean. There's a discernment that has to take place here that God teaches them this distinction between what is holy and, and what is unholy. That's right. And the declaration of God is the controlling thing. The emphasis in the Hebrew is actually only the holy are to touch the grain offerings. Notice the exhortation to treat this most holy offering with reverence. And we saw earlier that this offering was related to sanctifying various things. Here's the question for us on this. Do we attend to our sanctification with this kind of reverence? Do we attend to the sanctification of our brothers and sisters in Christ with this kind of reverence? This was another call we see to faithfulness by the priests. It was a model for the other Israelites that God's holiness was to be respected and that's shown in the action of the priests in relation to the grain offering. How they treated, how they modeled the glory and the holiness of God in their use of the grain offering was a model to the rest of the congregation, the rest of the nation, that God's holiness was to be respected. Are we modeling the worth of Christ and His holiness well? Are we doing that? Let's look at the ordination offering, 1923. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is the offering that Aaron and his sons shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed. A tenth of an ephah, a fine flour, as a regular grain offering. Half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons who was anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. Who's the anointed priest here? Who are we talking about? Is there a distinction between a regular priest and an anointed priest? The high priest. The high priest. So we're talking here about the, the ordination of a new high priest. What does this remind you of? What does this look like? Morning and evening it's offered. It's perpetual. This is remind you of the burnt offering we just read about earlier. It's a continual grain offering by the anointed high priest 
on behalf of the priesthood. This is a perpetual ceremony for the high priest during his tenure of service. It's a tenth of an ephah. It's a modest amount, about four pints of flour, the smart folks tell us. It's similar to the burnt offering that we see earlier in, in verse 8. The priest is offered this grain offering half in the morning and half in the evening. What does this show us about the high priest? If he's having to offer this every day, what does that show you about him? Quiet class this morning. Everybody hungry? He's dedicated. He's dedicated. Okay. What else? Who is he offering this for? Like, the, what's the, the priest is the idea. Priest. He's offering for the priest. So the priests, the priests offer one for the, the people. And that's outside. Right. Right. And then the high priest offers one for the priests. Right. It just it kind of it's kind of like a checks and balances kind of like everybody the priests are still a part of the people right but they're the leaders of the people right and they're sinful people as well and they need they need help as much as any of the rest of them. there's a sense in which we have a tendency to elevate those who are in service above the lay person right putting this in place the priest is showing, the high priest is showing, we may function differently within the congregation, we may function differently with, among the people, serving the tabernacle, serving the people, but we still need to be atoned for. We still need to be seeking God's favor and His blessing in our lives too. What does that do in the perception of the congregation of the priesthood and what does it do for the priest actually doing it? Well, the congregation goes, they're a man just like me. They're just called to a different function. It should, anyway. They need atonement just like I need atonement. And God is showing that. And for the priest, what does that guard against? Pride, doesn't it? Spiritual pride? Give glory to God, too, because if the priests were the ones that were the most holy and doing everything and it was all on their shoulders, mm. they could boast about it. Yeah. But since they can't, all the glory goes to God. Right. And then we'd all strive to be the guys with the funny hats rather than those who are who see our need of of God's favor and his atonement. It demonstrates the priest's dedication of service to God. He restates his consecration twice a day. It also shows the priest's recognition of his own unholiness and need for forgiveness. To give an offering of consecration or sanctification shows the need for consecration and sanctification. And all of the offering is consumed instead of some of it being eaten as stated earlier. Why is that? We talked about this before, didn't we? The, when the priest needs to give a sacrifice for himself or on behalf of the congregation, what happened? It's all that's consumed. They don't partake of anything that they're offering for themselves. They're not going to benefit from their own sin. Right? Okay? There's an ethical issue of eliminating conflict of interest. Alright, I like it. Notice that the priest cannot benefit from his own impurity. It is the same with the sin and guilt offerings. Um, the priest also, uh, the priest and lay people differed in function, but this offering shows clearly that the high priest was interceding for the priest because they too were in desperate need for the Lord in his favor. 
Alright, look at verse 24 through 30. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten, in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any of its blood is splashed on the garment, you shall wash out, wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. Remember that the sin of the purification offering was a way to purify away sin and impurity. It's also called most holy. Like the grain offering, it's exalted. It's, it's slaughtered in a holy place. And because it was most holy, the meat and the blood had to be handled carefully after the fat had been removed and burned. The remaining meat had to be eaten in a holy place by a holy people. Again, we see this distinction between what is holy and what is unholy. What does this deal with the garment? Blood splashed on the garment from the sin offering. What, what's going on there? Okay, what's what's impure? The blood is from the most holy offering on a garment, and yet they're saying you have to wash it. Even the most holy stuff, if used improperly, is still sin. So if something happens that wasn't supposed to happen, it makes it unholy. It could also just be a practical thing. The garments get dirty because of the blood and it needs to be washed and provision for washing this. You have to go do it in a holy place. Because that garment is holy. Okay, because the garment is holy. The blood is holy, coming from a uh, from a most holy offering. The point here is that the garment is a symbol of purity, right? And the blood must be used only for its designated purpose. It's not to be cast aside. Just anywhere. The blood of the most holy sacrifice must not enter the profane realm. They can't take it down to the laundromat and do it. They've got to do it in the holy place. Yet you also have the same idea with the different pots. You've got bronze and clay pots. Some vessels for honor that are scoured and some for dishonor that are just broken and thrown away. But they're not leaving the holy place because you're not taking holy things out into the common realm. What happens if it was the sin of the priest or the congregation? We see here, again, a reminder that if, if it's on behalf of the priest or the congregation, don't eat it if it had to be offered in the tent of meeting. It's the same kind of idea. Let's look at the, the, second, the last offering we have this morning is the guilt or the reparation offering in chapter 7. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. And the place... Where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering. And its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. And all its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers entrails, the two kidneys and with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver shall be he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. 
it is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have, it, shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on pan or griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. What's going on here? Remember that the guilt offering was the offering that they used to repair the relationship whenever they had breached the faith uh, to the covenant king. And we saw before when to bring it. This section of the manual, again, shows how to bring it. Again, the guilt offering is most holy. It's slaughtered in a holy place. The offering is also partially burned. Every male among the priests, only the holy people may eat of it. So holy offering, holy people eat of it in a holy place. The distinction, again, between holy and unholy, clean and unclean. What's to be done with the blood? What does it say? It's not like a cat all of a sudden. That's okay. It's been thrown against the side of the altar. Does that differ from the sin offering that we saw before? Yes, because remember the sin offering, you take the blood and you put it on the horns of the altar. This you throw it against the side of the altar. Lots of blood, lots of stuff. The language here in the Hebrew is ransom language rather than purification language concerning the atonement. It's a buying back. That's why it's thrown against the altar. It's a buying back. There, again, the distinction here between holy and unholy is carried out in verses 8 through 10 where only the priests can eat of the offering. Um, there's a practical reason for this. What's the practical reason the priests can eat from the offering? They need to eat. They don't have land. They don't have flocks. They don't have anything really to speak of to feed themselves. I mean, they have small flocks. What else do they get from these offerings? Food. They get grain and, and they bread. Get the they get the skin. Why is that important? They're just a bunch of rednecks. Why do they need the skin? They need clothes, tents, all that kind of stuff. The stuff you need to make clothes for your family takes a lot of dead animal skin. Live animal skin is a different story. Um, a, a lot of skin to do these things. So where are they going to get it? The people, the offering, God makes a provision for those who serve in the tabernacle to be provided for. Why would he do that? I mean, when you become a priest, aren't you supposed to take a vow of poverty and live in abject dirt? Because he's gracious. They didn't have large flocks, but God in his wisdom made provision for the priests and it frees them to do their duties before the people and in the tabernacle because they have to worry about providing for their families. Does that sound familiar? Do we have the same kind of idea in the New Testament? Can you think of that? 1 Corinthians 9, 13-14. And I'm glad he stepped out. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Galatians 6.6 6, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches the word. In this class, 
This is the way I view this class. This is not like the, the kids' section of adulthood. You're stepping into the role of serving in the church. You are becoming, hopefully, prayerfully, I plead with you to do so, church men and church women. Those who are plugged in, involved, and part of a congregation. This one in particular. And part of that is understanding what's going on with leadership and lay person stuff. I, I, I will tell you, uh, I've been uh, in churches for a little while, and one of the things that's always bothered me, especially Baptist churches, is that again, I'm glad you left, is this anxiety that many pastors feel that whatever they say may be the next thing to set somebody off to set the, 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 the eventual demise of their job at a church. That's how they provide for their families. And it's not just financially. The Lord is aware that if the needs of the shepherds are not met, they will not be able to care well for the sheep. It's not just financially. And again, I don't want you... Nothing going on that I know of here. Don't read into anything. I'm just, this is general. Make you aware. People stepping into a, a, the, the roles of leadership in the church and, and being active in church. Maybe be very conscious and careful about um, what is constructive criticism and what is just being snarky. Because it affects more deeply than we realize those whose livelihood depend upon a congregation wanting them to be there. Does that make sense? Nothing in particular I'm thinking of here. I just want again, I'm just talking general principles. We should be very free with our encouragement to our leadership. With, with Philip and Chad and, and Colin, I think. Very free with our encouragement there. Um a few untimely harsh words or non-constructive criticism can suck the joy out of shepherding God's people. As the author of Hebrews reminds us, they are keeping watch over our souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Not just financially, but how we treat them how we minister to them let them serve us with joy let's be a unique Baptist church <laughs> let them serve us with joy it's the pastor elders that are charged with tending to feeding the fire of the word reminding us of our constant dependence and need of Christ it's the pastor's Elders who are charged with watching over the sanctification of the souls of Christ's people by faithfully calling them to holiness. It's the pastor elders who are to work faithfully toward their own holiness with reverence because they may function differently, but they have the same desperate need for Jesus as those in the pew. It is the pastor elders who are charged with instructing us in wisdom so that we can discern between what is holy and unholy and the grace of the one sufficient offering given by Christ that atones continually for the forgiveness and holiness of His people. It's their charge to teach us these things, to be about shepherding us well. And, and adding to that, I mean, think about it. 
the weight of the statement of as one who must give account for souls. Be encouraging to them. Be encouraging to them. Love on them. Unlike the priest we read about this morning, our great high priest does not atone for himself. There's no perpetual burnt offering for Jesus. He offered once and it was enough. Unlike the priests under the old covenant, we have a great high priest who is sinless and does not need to atone for himself. He does not have to give a symbolic offering again and again to show his consecration to God's service. He is God. He proved his dedication both to the holiness of God and to the redemption of his people through humbling and obedience even to the death of the cross. Further, his blood does not stain our garments requiring us to wash it off. Rather, His blood makes our garments white. Do you see the distinction? Christ, our eternal high priest, cleanses us by means of his own blood. Um, David's always wanted me to talk about Revelation. Here's my nod to Revelation. In Revelation uh, 7, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, it says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He is our perpetual burnt offering. He is our perpetual ordination offering as priests because we are considered to be a nation of peace. We have the duty not only to call other people to holiness, but to maintain and faithfully monitor our own holiness. It's a serious thing. We should treat it reverentially, with great attention. How are we doing? How are we doing? Are we before the throne daily, calling on God once again to make us faithful and thanking Him for His covenant faithfulness to us? Are we looking around saying... I need to be about uh, challenging a brother or sister in Christ, encouraging a brother and sister in Christ, because it's the temple that I'm concerned about. Not my own happiness, not my own, did my favorite song get played, not, not any of that, did it have a backbeat, none of that. It's what's the holiness of the church and what is it, what is it portraying to the world outside? A lot of... Um, How I say it? Argumentation, objection, snarkiness, however you want to characterize it, directed at the church for hypocrisy. Uh, I don't want to give more arguments. I don't want to be about that. And, And I hope you don't either. We need to be daily, humbly, recognizing our need for Christ, our dependence upon Him, and our need to press on toward holiness in the church. These guys were called to model it for the rest of the nation, to to work on their own holiness as a model to the rest of the nation. And I think the call in the New Testament is the same for us. Any other comments, questions? This was a long one. I know it had a lot of various and sundry parts, but it's it's a picture, again, of what we're called to be and who we're called to be.
Tim, yeah. one thing that stood out to me today is how much, uh, you, know, you, you said this obviously, but it just stuck out in my mind, is how much we need to help and pray for the leaders of our church. Because you look at the model of this carried forward to the New Testament, Christ is now our high priest who is continually, prayerfully helping us, the leaders of the church and all the people. Right. Um, but with the, the analogy that's in here, the people gathered all the wood and brought it to the, the high priest. Right. We need to do that for the, the pastors and leaders of our church. Yeah. We need to help and all band together. Yeah, there's a. I think there's a real tendency uh, among among us to view the guys who uh, are in the pulpit as being the really holy super Christians. And while they're learned and while they've, they're studied, they they still struggle with their own pride, their own sin, their own thing. And we need to be praying for them, taking their holiness on our shoulders as well, pleading with God for that work as well, because that's a tough burden to be in the limelight from everybody seeing how your kids act, how your wife may respond to an offhanded question. You know, that's a big scrutiny. That's a big deal. And we need to be in prayer for them. <clears throat> for Philip and Amanda, for Chad and, Chad and Amanda. It's nice that we have Amanda's as wives because it makes it easy to remember in prayer. But we need to be in prayer. And Colin, as he's doing his thing, pray for them. Be on your knees for them. You know, that, that, that Christ would... would would be working continually, keep them kept, and not um, and not add sorrow, but that they can serve with joy. That's what we want to. That's what we want to see. Any, anything else? All right, let's pray because it's late. God, thank you that you've told us that when Christ ascended, He gave gifts to men, and one of those is a pastor, a shepherd, and we pray that you would make us remember and conscious uh, of, of the needs of the leadership of, of uh, Philip and Amanda and of Chad and, Chad and Amanda, and that, that we would be um, not just willing to support them financially while they uh, are preaching the gospel, but also that we would be encouraging to them, that, they, that because of how we treat them, they could serve our congregation with joy. Father, I pray that you do the work in this class of, again, shaping us and moving us toward being vibrant, active, wise members of the local body. And this is one of those elements where we see the role of the pastor um, and the needs that you have provided for there. And that may, may we be faithful in, in addressing those needs not just financially, but, but emotionally and loving on them and supporting them. Father, as we also look at this passage, we also see the need of our own faithfulness to attend to our own holiness, not to allow what is unholy to creep in and, and, and to stain our garments, so to speak. God, I pray that each of us is convicted of our own sin, but rests in the grace of the finished and completed work of Jesus thanking Him for His grace, thanking You for Your love, and thanking the Holy Spirit for His fellowship in us and among us, drawing us together in unity to display the glory and beauty and holiness of Jesus. We pray for these things again in His name. Amen.